If you turn to Luke chapter 23, we will again read verse 26 through 49. And if you would stand once you're there for the reading of God's Word. Luke 23, starting in verse 26. And as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people, and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren, and the wombs that never bore, and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about the, ninth, the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, we are in the final week of our four-week look at these verses in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, no doubt these, uh, these verses... All go together. The verse uh, from the from the very first part of verse 26 all the way through to the end in uh, verse 49. Um, this is one section with one thought, one idea that it's just taken us a couple of weeks to get through. So, um, in order to try to make sure that tonight is self-contained, meaning you don't have to have all of the last three weeks, you don't have to have been there to be able to understand tonight. Uh, let me take a little bit of time as we get into the text just to recap where we've been, and then I'll try to turn us to the text that we're looking at specifically tonight. Um, we've been in the Gospel of Luke for a uh, better, better part of three years now. 
working through it, looking at sometimes small sections, you know, one verse chunks. Sometimes, you know, we've covered whole chapters in, in one go. The Gospel of Luke is, is the genre of uh, what, what's called a gospel. Uh, there's not really a close analogy for it anywhere else in the, in the ancient world. But generally what gospels do, what these accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and also John, are communicating, is they're communicating not just about a historical figure, like a biography might, but they're also telling us what to believe in light of this historical figure. If you've ever read a biography about, say, Winston Churchill, uh, or Dietrich Bonhoeffer, or some other figure uh, of, of, the, of recent history, maybe Abraham Lincoln, those biographies tell you factual information. They'll tell you sometimes stories about that person from their early life. But generally, a good biography won't also tell you, and this is what you must do in light of how Abraham Lincoln lived his life, or this is what you must do in response to how, uh, how George Washington handled the American Revolution. They're just telling you what happened uh, in light of the historical details. The Gospels are different in that they don't just tell stories about Jesus or about the happenings in the life of Jesus, but they also make claims that, that argue a point. They're persuasive, persuasive biographies, if you might think about them that way. They are arguing a point, not just that Jesus existed, but that he was a certain kind of person. And not just that Jesus was a historical figure, but actually, as the Gospel writers all claim, he was the Son of God incarnate, the second person of, of the Trinity. And not only was he all that, but he came specifically for this purpose, to save sinners from their sin. All of these things are argued for in the various Gospels. We've just been looking at one of those accounts. And in Luke's Gospel in particular, these verses represent, as we've covered a number of times, they represent uh, all of that stuff coming to a head. Right? If you think about how waves, as they come to the beach, they build up over time, and eventually they crash down, leaving you with all the impact and force and uh, all the momentum that has been kind of built up over the course of that wave uh, building, uh, building its momentum. Uh, this is a little bit what's happening in these verses. Now, the, truly, these verses and, and the beginning part of chapter 24 is that wave crashing down and starting to get to the implications of it. But here is at least part one of, of all that. And so and the crucifixion is, I would say, central to the life of Jesus. You cannot understand the life or the healing or the mercy that Jesus displays in his life. You cannot understand any of that unless you also understand that it goes into and it is in the stream of him dying on a cross. If you cut the cross off, you end up with a kind of Jesus, just not the same one that the gospel writers end up with. You end up with a historical figure who just doesn't resemble the same figure that Luke is portraying, or the same figure that Mark portrays, the same figure that John and Matthew portray. So the crucifixion is essential, which is why we've been taking a number of weeks to get through it. And so, well, that takes us to what we've been covering the last couple of weeks. Uh, the thesis has been this, that Jesus is the curse-bearing prophet, priest, king, who recreates our access to God. You don't need to know, again, you don't have to have that memorized. That's just there for you as a thinking piece. And we've been going through each of those elements. So Jesus... Uh, was, in fact, a prophet. That's what we see in verses 26 through verse 31. Not only does he do prophecies elsewhere in the Gospel of Luke, such as most of Luke chapter 21 is a prophecy, but he, he at this instance, as he's being led to his death, is exercising his role as a prophet. And what prophets did in the Old Testament, what Jesus does here, 
is he announces the redemption of Yahweh for his people and also the destruction upon those who reject Yahweh's offer of salvation. You see this in Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah. Turn to any of those prophets. Turn to Isaiah. Turn to Ezekiel. They're all doing this. They're saying, you have rebelled against God. God offers you salvation. Turn from your sins. And if you don't turn from your sins, here is the judgment coming. That's what all the prophets do. Jesus is no different. He goes on the way to the cross. Women are weeping over him. And he says, don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves in the coming judgment. That's week one. Week two Tim took us through Jesus fulfilling his office. Uh, not, not, he doesn't shut off his prophetic office and then turn to put on a different hat. He's wearing all of these simultaneously. And, and verse 32 through verse 38, his, the prophecies about him are being confirmed. People are heaping shame and, and condemnation upon him. They're accusing him. All of those are things he predicted about himself. But he also uh, fulfills or is identified as a king and as a priest. He, on the cross, intercedes for those who are crucifying him. And he says, Father, forgive them. And, and that is him interceding. He's saying, I stand between heaven and earth, between mankind and the Godhead, and I intercede between them. Here, mankind is rebelling against God. The wrath of God is what Jesus is absorbing in his body. And even as he is doing that, he's saying, and I'm going to advocate on behalf of those who are actively persecuting me. He's, he's being a priest. Uh, and then he also is identified here as a king. Uh, not only does the sign above him say he is the king of the Jews, but also in the very next section, verses uh, 39 to uh, 43, one of the criminals who's being crucified with him uh, refers to him as a king and says, welcome be into your kingdom. And so he's being identified as a king in these verses as well. And then last week in particular, we just took verse 39 to 43 and looked at how, how Jesus' work of sacrificing himself on the cross, what does that accomplish in history? And most notably, it, what it accomplishes is it reunifies God and man together. God and man have been at odds with one another since the garden, with God making temporary provisions so that he could reach out and fellowship with his people but none of them have been lasting provisions. As the book of Hebrews says, the blood of bulls and goats cannot deal with sin. So those who offer these sacrifices are doing temporary activities that don't actually deal with the wrath of God. What does Jesus do? In his crucifixion, he is actually dealing with the wrath of God, recreating our access to the Father. But as I talked about at that time, that's not just he recreates access to the Father, therefore go on living as you want to. Well, when you live with God, when you walk with him, you live your life differently as a result. Just as those of you who are married know that your life is different when you're single than when you are married. You now live a different kind of life with different responsibilities and a different orientation than you did before that, or at least you should. And so Jesus is, is not just recreating our access to God so that we can go on living in our sin, but he recreates our access to God so we can live a new life, a life that is vivified by him and by his spirit. And that takes us to this week, uh, where we're going to not just look at the access to God peace. What does that mean? We already talked about that. We're going to talk about how the access to God peace works. So if I was going to focus in on one aspect of this, uh, that, that thesis, Jesus is the curse-bearing one. So he's the curse-bearing prophet, priest, king, who 
recreates our access to God. This week, I just want to focus on the fact that he bears the curse. It's how he recreates our access to God. And and these verses open up with curse-type language. Take a look at verse 44. It was now about the sixth hour. By the way, the sixth hour is roughly noon. It's the middle of the day. And there was darkness over the whole land until three hours later. So from midday to three o'clock, it's dark outside. Some people have said, well, what really happened is Jesus happened to be crucified on the same day that a solar eclipse happened. And everyone just kind of misinterpreted these events. I Googled it this week. A solar eclipse can last at most seven and a half minutes. Not quite three hours. Uh, this, is, this is not what's happening. It is not some phenomena, phenomenon that we can explain by, oh, Jesus happened to die on the same day that this happened, and so that explains how his followers reinterpret all these things in light of. So Jesus actually said in Luke 21, if you remember, that one of the signs of God's judgment is the sun, moon, and stars being shaken from heaven and the sun failing to give its light. He says that in Luke 21. When referring to the temple, remember, his disciples go and they're, they're looking at the temple, they're glorifying in the temple, and Jesus says not one stone on this thing will be left upon another. And then in that discourse, particularly if you look at verse 25 of Luke 21, you don't have to turn there, I'll, I'll read it. Jesus says this, And there will be signs in the sun, moon, and stars, and upon the earth, distress of nations, perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves. Roaring of the sea and the waves is human chaotic rebellion in the whole book of the Psalms. So here, are, here is humanity rebelling against God, and as a result of that, God judges humanity by signs of the sun, moon, and stars. People fainting with fear and foreboding as to what is coming upon the world, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Here's what God's judgment, God's judgment looks like. God judges sin by means of cosmic power. Luke 21 alludes to this. Here we have the cross, Jesus being crucified, bearing that cosmic judgment on his own body. And what happens? The sun fails to give its light in the middle of the day. This is the kind of thing that if you're a careful reader, perks up your ears. You, you, you hear this, you read this, and you think, that is fascinating that the sun in the middle of the day darkens and Jesus has earlier said about the destruction of the temple, the sun, moon, and stars are shaken and the heaven itself is shaken. Put a pin in that. We're going to turn back to Luke 21 uh, towards the end of our time in the text tonight. What, what is at least clear in this is that with this cosmic judgment that's happening, that everyone understands it to be abnormal. Okay? You have a Gentile, uh, uh, someone who is not from the Jewish community, uh, probably doesn't know Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus super well. He doesn't really understand all of the things we've kind of been talking about the last couple of weeks, that Jesus is a prophet, expected by Moses, all these kinds of things. But there's this man who's crucifying Jesus, who's part of the group of soldiers that's crucifying Jesus, and the sun's light fails. Jesus calls out with a loud voice saying, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having breathed his last, uh, having breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw this and all that had taken place, he praised God. 
saying, certainly, this man was innocent. The Gentile, watching all these things happening, has probably observed the exchange of the religious leaders against Jesus. Maybe he's taken part in the flogging of Jesus that happens earlier in the text where Jesus is being accused and held in captivity. Maybe he's gone to transport Jesus in security from moment to moment in the trial and has watched uh, this sham situation going on. Everyone's saying Jesus is innocent, innocent, innocent. And he's thinking, well, you know, this is happening. He's, he's, here, he's here part of the process. You just imagine being in the shoes of this centurion as, as you watch all this take place. You don't have to be particularly Jewish to have a sense of the injustice of the moment, the injustice of that kind of situation. You don't have to be particularly religious to look at this and think this is an unjust thing that is taking place by all measure. And the centurion does not have the Hebrew Old Testament at his disposal. Here he's witnessing all these things take place. He sees a criminal profess to, profess to have Jesus as their king. Jesus welcomes this criminal in, and here comes a centurion who observes even Jesus giving up his breath with darkness over the whole land. And he's, he concludes, certainly this man was innocent. And this praises God. We don't know whether this centurion you know, becomes part of the early church or anything like that. But what we do know is this, that the centurion has a sense. He's reading the signs that are going on. He has a sense of what's going on. He sees that this is an abnormal situation. That, that much is clear, that it's a cosmic judgment that's happening, and, and even Gentiles are aware of the significance of these kinds of things. Other gospel accounts will tell us that as the sun is darkened, there are earthquakes throughout the whole of Judea, which is not covered in, or, or which is covered in Luke 21, talking about that cosmic judgment on the temple. There will be earthquakes and wars and rumors of wars, and then the sun, moon, and stars will be shaken. So Jesus is bearing the curse in his own body. The curse that he predicts will fall upon the city of Jerusalem is being born in himself. And the curse that is your and, your and my curse, the one that we have uh, built up for our own sin, well, he's dealing with that. And the reason I'm, I'm going into detail on all of, all of these kinds of pieces, that Jesus is in fact the example of what it means to be under the curse of God, is because counterintuitively that's extremely comforting if you're a Christian. Because if you're a Christian, one of the, one of the main things that is a trouble is, is, is not that you don't know the right things to believe. It's not that you don't uh, read your Bible. It's not that you don't pray. It's that every Christian that I've ever talked to, and even myself, struggles with this overwhelming sense of what if there is sin outstanding that hasn't been dealt with that I will pay for in the end? Because I'm a marvelous sinner after all. I commit lots of sin. And there's this lingering doubt that Jesus' death really can cover all of this sin that we both participate in and experience and are recipients of and, uh, and under all the time. And this text, in part, serves as a regular reminder that the pinnacle of curse-bearing is Jesus' death on the cross. So that yours doesn't have to be. 
Remember Jesus trades places with Barabbas. And one of the things that becomes clear in the early church, in the preaching of the apostles, is that this offer of salvation goes out to anyone and everyone who would receive Christ as Lord. That one, upon receiving Christ, upon being part of his people, well, he leads and guides and directs and intercedes for his own. So that if you are Christ's, there is no curse to be born. Well, because Christ has borne it. There is no outstanding due to be paid for sin. Or, very, very practically, when you look at another Christian and you say, brother, sister, I have sinned against you in thought, action, deed, they can look back at you and say, and the blood of Jesus covers your sin. I forgive you. There's, there's no, there's no uh, therapy that can do that kind of thing. There's no human relationship building that can solve these deep-rooted uh, pains that sin causes. But the blood of Jesus, by actually taking away the power of sin, can solve all of those issues. It's actually one of the things that Christians are called to walk in, in fellowship with one another, that when you sin against me and I sin against you or you sin against your brother and sister in the faith, you go to them and you confess your sin and in turn they don't just say, oh, that's okay. They say, you're forgiven. Your sin has been dealt with. Christ has paid the penalty so that you don't have to. Walk in forgiveness. That is immensely freeing to experience something like that. It is inviting. It is beautiful. And uh, frankly, it is sustainable. Because our habits, our discipline, our own uh, relational navigating is not a sustainable thing. It's only a matter of time before we drop the ball and sin again. And what Christ's blood does for us is it says there's a permanent check of grace for your sin. To deal with it all. And here's a reminder of the fact that Jesus actually did pay that in the past. It's like when... uh, You order something online, and you get an email or a text back that says, payment confirmed. It's like that. Because Jesus, payment confirmed in his death on the cross. You have assurance of that. You have uh, a proof that this payment has occurred in history. And that gives assurance. That gives comfort. That gives confidence that when you sin, there is uh, forgiveness to be had. And so, as Christians, we are invited to walk in that. It's not just something we should theologically assent to and say, I think that that's true. I hope that that's true. But we are actually encouraged to to talk to one another and say, remind each other that that's true. That is what we believe, in fact. So here is Jesus, the picture of the curse. And Jesus' curse-bearing does not just have significance for Christians. It also has significance for those who are on the periphery of the faith. Because in him dealing with sin it creates this massive wave of invitation to say, and you can be part of this as well. Because what Christians don't believe is that Christianity is some in-group, out-group thing, and therefore, we, we have us and we have no one else. Actually, the whole point of the Christian church and church planting and church discipleship and church ministry is to say, here's the grace and redemption that I've experienced, and Christ welcomes you into that too if you would receive him in faith. That's a very simple, very plain way of saying a Christian church is designed to grow, not just because it's an organization like how 
how Lilly grows because it sells and does business in Indianapolis, or how uh, startup companies grow because they have good business models. The church grows because its Savior's blood has paid for those into whom it's, it's welcoming. It's a different kind of thing. It's not that the church grows in order to welcome more members. The church grows because there are more members out there in the world who have been paid for by the blood of Christ. It's a totally different kind of thing. And so what we see in the book of Acts is the gospel going forth and many people all over these cities being saved because they are of Christ's people. They respond to him in faith. And so we're invited as Christians with a guaranteed opportunity of success to preach the gospel. And not only does this curse bearing have relevance for Christians and those who are just on the periphery of the kingdom, it also sadly has significance for those who are outside of Christ and will remain so. Very unpopular thing to say that God has wrath for sin. Try leading a conversation with someone when you're talking about what God is like and angling with God is like a perfectly holy judge who will avenge every sin that has ever happened in all of human history. And just watch how that weighs on someone if you say something like that. But it's a necessary part of the message. And we would turn around and say, and there is forgiveness to be hidden in Christ. But also there is true debt to be paid outside of him. What Jesus typifies here in bearing the curse is the pinnacle of what judgment looks like. This is what is a foretaste of God's wrath poured out in the end of time upon all those who are outside of him in rebellion. It's a foretaste. The, the chief descriptors are hell, of hell is a place of darkness, of weeping, of cosmic judgment. Here Jesus is on the cross in hell so that you and I don't have to be. But also, unfortunately, it, it's, a, it's a real example of the fact that hell is a real thing. God's wrath against sin is a real thing. So then it should motivate us, I think, to plead with those who are outside of the faith or around the periphery of the faith and to say, this is a real offer of redemption for you. But if I can just be honest, I have concern for your soul because this is not a neutral kind of thing. Better your life or stay as it is. It's live a totally different life or there is coming judgment upon you. So all that comes from just the first couple of verses, right? Jesus bears the curse in his body. He deals with it. Now, how this curse bearing works is actually pretty interesting. So if you look at verse 45, depending on your translation, there might be like the middle of a sentence and then a new sentence starts. In the ESV, what I'm reading out of, the new sentence starts midway through verse 45 it says, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Now, we don't have temples that we gather around as Christians. So you might read something like that and you think, interesting. I'm not really sure what's, what's that got to do with anything else. Now, if you've grown up in the church, no doubt you've heard a pastor try to explain to you the significance of this temple tearing uh, so let me try to do just that for those of you who have no necessary familiarity with this. The Old Testament 
how God dwells with mankind is not just by showing his favor upon them, but also by giving a space where he is to be worshipped and honored and adored, essentially in a 24-7 cycle. The Levites are the only group, clan, in the Old Testament. They're the, they're the priests. They're the ones who go and worship in this temple. They're the only ones who can't take the Sabbath off. Everyone else is supposed to take the Sabbath off. Unless you're in, serving in a unique duty of military, guarding a city, everyone takes Sabbath off, unless you're a priest. Because God is to be worshipped week in and week out. Sacrifices are to be made week in and week out. The atonement is to be had every single day year. And there's a part of the temple. Temple's kind of like layers. You have the outside part that everyone can come into who's Jewish, part of the covenant people. Then you have this kind of inner part where only Jewish men can go into. And you have another part that really only the high priest can go into, and that only once a year. And the, the, the separator between that innermost part, what's called the holy of holies, and these other layers is there's a veil. There's a curtain. A, now, a curtain does not do this justice because you think of a curtain, you think of like a shower curtain or like a curtain that hangs and covers windows or like a blackout curtain that covers one window in your room. You've got about like six of them to cover all the windows so the, the room's actually dark. This is not that kind of curtain. This, is, this curtain is probably by all, all estimates like almost 100 feet tall. It's a massive curtain. And so this curtain, this gigantic, you think about it like a stage drape, is torn into, and it's not designed to split in half, like a stage drape is designed to uh, unveil. The curtain is torn into, not designed to, because it's declaring something to be true now that was not true during the sixth hour of Jesus' crucifixion. The, terp, the, the curtain is torn because now, Anyone, priests, Jews, Gentiles, men, women, everyone, can have access to God. And if I could, could put it this way, there's a new temple in town. Remember, uh, and I said, well, we're going to revisit Luke 21 in a moment. In Luke 21, one of the things I tried to labor on during that text was that Jesus is talking about the destruction of the Jerusalem temple in 70 AD. So I think it's going on from verse 5 to verse 38. I think, that's, I think that's what he's talking about. But when we talked about the significance, why is he stopping to talk about a building being destroyed? It's because there is only one true temple. And Jesus comes because he is the true temple. Now what I'm not saying is that Jesus is a building. Okay? The temple accomplishes something in the Old Testament. What the temple does is it allows access to God. This is what I kind of zoomed in on in the Levitical system. But you know, the temple predates even that system. In the very beginning, kind of what we talked about last week, in the very beginning of the book of Genesis, Eden is a garden. And when the Israelites are led out of Egypt, one of the first things they're instructed to do is to build this place called the tabernacle. And on the inner part of the tabernacle, all the design and imagery is garden imagery. Because in Genesis, uh, in, in the Garden of Eden, you can dwell with God in peace, in perfect harmony. The tabernacle says, here's a microcosm of the world where you can dwell with God in perfect harmony. You can have access to God speaking with him face to face. 
Solomon comes, he builds an official building, not a giant tent, but an official temple. And in that temple, he, matter, he, he patterns it after the tabernacle. And the tabernacle, which is the tent, uh, transforms into the temple, the permanent structure that has this holy of holies, like I just talked about. And all of the inside of the holy of holies is garden imagery. You've got pomegranates, sun, moon, and stars. You've got this beautiful display of creation uh, beauty. And Jesus, well, he says in John's gospel, he is the temple. And he says about that same thing in the gospel of Luke. And the point is not that Jesus is asserting that he is a structural building. But the point is that he is the place where you can go to have access to God. Or place might be too narrow of a term. He is the way by which you can access God. He is the means by which God and man can fellowship together. Because what the temple is, just like what the Garden of Eden was, is a place where God and man can fellowship together. That's what the tabernacle is. The Holy of Holies is a place where God and the priests fellowship together. That's what the, the temple is uh, in, in the, after King Solomon built it. In fact, it's one of the significant points of the Babylonian destruction of the temple in the, in the Israelite exile. There's no more place to go to access God because the temple has been destroyed. Well, uh, some of the Old Testament prophets are sent to go rebuild the temple and detail that. And uh, they, they rebuild the temple to its previous specifications. And even, uh, even by the time we get to Luke's gospel, you have this king, king of the Jews, uh, Herod. He serves as the king in the area. And he's laboring to build up the temple so that it can have its former glory, so it can be beautiful and lovely and wonderful, so that people can have an encounter with God in this beautiful structure. But what Jesus does in entering, the, in, in entering Jerusalem is he goes to the temple and he says, my house will not be a den of robbers. He says this temple is not doing what it's supposed to do. It's supposed to be a place where people access God. And here you have turned it into a, a, a commerce place, a place of exchange, a place of human benefit. <laughs> he condemns the temple. Two chapters later, he prophesies the destruction of the temple. And here he, the new temple, is bearing the judgment of God so that the temple veil can be torn so that when he resurrects, we can see that there's one true temple and it's not this one that stands in Jerusalem. It's this one who is resurrected. He is the place, the means by which you can access God. So honestly, one of the great benefits of being a Christian after this resurrection takes place, one of the, one of the great things of being part of God's people now, is you don't have to travel to the Middle East to pray to God. You can, you can lay in your bed in the morning and pray to God. You can fall on your knees wherever you are in your house or workday or wherever, and you can have access to God. That's not really true historically. But we can go to God because of what Jesus did in his bearing the curse on our behalf. Okay, why does that matter, all of that? It matters greatly because you and I should, with confidence and with, I would say, regularity, take advantage of the fact that we have access to God. This is not something to just believe. It's also something to live in. We have this great and wonderful privilege as children of God that we can not only pray to the Father, our Father who art in heaven, but we can also regularly worship him, commune with him, enjoy rest from him. All of these we can have because of what Christ has done so that we can have access to the Father.
It's this amazing, amazing spectacle. So that's why it matters. Now, uh, if I could just, for one brief moment and one last detail, uh, take you to the quote that Jesus has right before he uh, gives up his spirit. Verse 46 Jesus, then Jesus calling out with a loud voice, significant detail, because one of the ways you die in the crucifixion is by asphyxiation, you suffocate. So here Jesus is being crucified, crying out with a loud voice, and he's in a number of words gonna, gonna die. The point is, like what he says in John's gospel, no one takes my life from me, I lay it down. He's not, he's not going to die, he's going to give himself over to death. You understand? He's not, the re- he's not the passive recipient of this death. He has self-indicted, and now he's giving up his own spirit to death. So he cries out with a loud voice and says these words, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Now, if you have a study Bible, or maybe a Bible with footnotes, you might look down and you might see this is a quote that comes out of Psalm chapter 31, verse 5. And the psalms, remember, are kind of like the hymn book of the Jewish people. It's, it's what they would sing, what they would chant in order to propagate truth to their children, but also to worship. The psalms are usually used in temple worship. Psalm 31, verse 5, is one line in this longer psalm. And so what Jesus is doing is he's quoting and importing all of Psalm 31 when he quotes Psalm 31, verse 5. Now, what this is like is if you grow up in church, you might be familiar with some of these. If I say, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me, your mind fills in. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was bound, but now I'm free. If I say to you the the lyrics, in Christ alone, my hope is found, you import, your mind begins to fill in all the other aspects of this song, right? You, you're quoting the other lyrics. You don't have to say them out loud. Your mind automatically goes there. You bring the whole song in. Same thing if I say, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. I'll pause, and your mind just fills in all the rest of those lyrics. Now, if you're not familiar with any of those songs, uh, that's okay. I, I, my point that I'm making is if you are familiar with, the, with a song and someone quotes to you or sings or or hints at one aspect of that song, the whole song comes into play. The whole song kind of comes to your mind. So if you'll briefly, and just for a few minutes, flip with me to Psalm 31. I just want to show you what this psalm is is getting at. Psalm 31 is uh, a psalm of lament. It's a a big category of psalms. All it means is that these are psalms that are people crying out to God for help and and mourning over sin, suffering, or some other kind of thing. Psalm 31 is one of these lament psalms, and it starts off in verse 1 with the psalmist saying, probably David, In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. Okay? Go down to verse 5, the, the verse that it's quoting from. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. 
So here's Jesus quoting a line, but here he's expecting his, you know, his contemporaries to fill in some of the blanks about what's going on in the psalm. Now, I don't think this is uh, central to the point, but in verse 10 of the psalm, you might, I just want to flag this if, in case you read it later. Verse 10, for my life is spent with sorrow, my years with sighing, my strength fails because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. This is not Jesus saying, I am a sinner who needs redemption. Jesus, remember, is bearing sin in himself on the tree, has been declared innocent multiple times. So yes, Psalm 31 applies in the sense that he is dealing with the sins of others born upon himself, but it's not Jesus saying, I'm a sinner, I need salvation. Okay, I just want to flag that, not central to my point. Okay, verse 14. But I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hand. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. And then, if you'll see where the psalm terminates, verse 23 and 24, here, here it turns now to worship. Love the Lord, all you his saints. The Lord preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. Be strong and let your heart take courage. All you who wait on the Lord. Jesus, at the hour of his death, is saying to his disciples, saying to his enemies, Psalm 31 applies here. I trust myself to God. He will deliver me from my persecutors. And so how do the faithful respond? How do you respond, Christian, to Jesus' quote here? Love the Lord, all you his saints. The Lord preserves the faithful. That's you. Not because you're particularly faithful, but because Christ is. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. All you who wait on the Lord. So what do we do in response to Jesus' curse-bearing sacrifice? We wait on the Lord. We worship him. We adore him for what he has done. And then the only fitting thing to do is what we're going to do in a few moments here, which is respond in worship for this great God. Let's pray. Father, you are not just the creator, not just the sustainer of life, but Lord, in your sacrifice, we know you now also as redeemer. We know you as faithful and true and just and as merciful and gracious and kind, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love to those who fear you. Lord, put your fear within us. Put your love within us so we can respond in worship and praise as is fitting. Lord, I pray not, not just for us who call you Lord, but also for those who don't, Lord, that you would do a work in their heart to cause them to love you, to serve you, to praise you, and to see your sacrifice as, as lovely on behalf of sin. We pray this all as a worshiping people in Christ's name. Amen. <coughs>